what I've learned in ACA that the main effects of alcoholism and family dysfunction are fear and distorted thinking. Sometimes this fear and distorted thinking gets passed down through the generations, has been called para-alcoholism. We also talk about alcoholism being a family disease. So it's not just the person who is using alcohol abusively who has the disease of alcoholism. It's the entire family because it's embedded in the relationships around the alcoholic. And family dysfunction of whatever variety, alcoholism or otherwise, is intergenerational. That is, the patterns are passed down through the generations, unknowingly, of course. Hi, I'm Barb Nangle. I want to welcome you to my podcast, Fragmented to Whole, Life Lessons from 12-Step Recovery, where I help people heal their emotional, psychological, and spiritual wounds and make deep, lasting changes in their lives. I'm the founder and CEO of Higher Power Coaching and Consulting. I'm a boundaries coach who specializes in helping women who are focused on what others are thinking and doing and neglect themselves in the process. And I have coached hundreds of people on how to build healthy boundaries using my exclusive build framework. On this podcast, I share my experience, strength, and hope from recovery. I don't support or endorse any particular 12-step recovery fellowship, and I don't claim to speak for any particular 12-step fellowship. I also don't believe that 12-step recovery is the only way to recover. You might need additional help. I'm an avid beachcomber who collects sea glass, shells, wood, and stones. I am a formerly closeted fan of the Hallmark Channel, especially the Christmas movies. Hello, Christmas in July. I wear fingerless gloves from September to June because my hands are always cold, so I have about 15 pairs. And I get a huge kick out of counting how many days, weeks, and months there are until my birthday or Christmas at completely random times of the year. My hope is that you'll find my words concretely helpful in improving your life, whether you're in recovery or not. If you like what you've heard on this episode, please screenshot it and share it on your social media and tag me at Higher Power Coaching. This is episode 216, what it means to be powerless over the effects of alcoholism. Step one in every 12-step program is where we admit we are powerless over something and that our lives have become unmanageable. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we're powerless over alcohol. In Overeaters Anonymous, we're powerless over food. In Al-Anon, we're also powerless over alcohol. In CODA, we're powerless over other people. And in ACA, we are powerless over the effects of alcoholism and family dysfunction. What I've learned in ACA that the main effects of alcoholism and family dysfunction are fear and distorted thinking. Sometimes this fear and distorted thinking gets passed down through the generations, has been called para-alcoholism. We also talk about alcoholism being a family disease. So it's not just the person who is using alcohol abusively, who has the disease of alcoholism. It's the entire family because it's embedded in the relationships around the alcoholic. And family dysfunction of whatever variety, alcoholism or otherwise, is intergenerational. 
That is, the patterns are passed down through the generations, unknowingly, of course. This is not to blame our parents or other ancestors. They passed down what was given to them. And even though I'm talking about alcoholism here, and that is how any family dysfunction works. It doesn't matter whether it's from alcoholism or some other source. It's just one very obvious example of how family dysfunction is passed on. I've been involved in many a conversation with people in the ACA program, which, by the way, stands for Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families, if you're not familiar with that acronym. I've had many conversations with other ACAs where we're talking about something And I'll say, you know, that's actually a step one issue. That means it's something we are powerless over and likely also something that is causing our lives to become unmanageable. Now, recall that I said the main effects of family dysfunction, which is what we're powerless over in ACA, are fear and distorted thinking. So let me talk about the fear first. One thing that became clear to me through the process of 12-step recovery was that I have been mired in fear my entire life, but I didn't know that. What's really interesting about the fear is that I've always felt safe in the world. There are a lot of women who, especially at night and in cities, don't feel safe. They don't feel safe in the world, and I'm just not one of those women. So the idea that I lived my life in fear forever was astonishing to me when it became clear, but it explained so many things. I was really afraid of showing people who I really was and what I really thought, to the point where there were parts of me where I didn't even know who I really was. And I didn't really know what I thought about certain things because I was so used to deferring to those around me. Now, this doesn't mean that I didn't have any opinions of my own about anything. And it doesn't mean that I was a wallflower or that I didn't know anything about myself. But there were large parts of me that were up for negotiation because I was so mired in fear of what other people thought of me I was mainly afraid of being judged by other people and being rejected by other people. Thus, I became a people pleaser and bent over backwards trying to get the approval of other people. Now, I didn't know any of that was going on until I got into recovery. And as a reminder, I was 52 when I got into recovery and I started therapy at about 15. So that's 30 years of almost continuous therapy. And none of those fucking therapists ever told me any of this stuff about myself. Nobody told me that I was codependent, that I had victim mentality, that I was mired in fear, that I was emotionally unavailable, codependent, had no boundaries, none of that stuff. It wasn't until recovery that I got to see all those things about myself. So that's an example of the fear that I am powerless over. And that resulted from growing up in a dysfunctional family. Now, when it comes to the distorted thinking, there are endless examples, and I'll share just a few. The idea that being rejected by other people is something I cannot withstand is distorted thinking. The idea that there's only one way to do things, or there's only one type of music that you should be listening to, 
or only one educational path you should follow, or that people being sarcastic and teasing you is normal and it's funny. It doesn't matter if it's painful to you because it was just a joke. Or the idea that we don't talk about important things like feelings and goals and aspirations and fears. Those are all distorted thinking. The fact that dad has been cheating on mom for decades and mom is lying about smoking in the bathroom and we don't talk about those sorts of things and we don't ask questions about things like that. This is all part of the distorted thinking. Another big part of the distorted thinking is that you should rescue, fix, and save other people. Bend over backwards, abandon yourself so that you can take care of other people. Now, it's not like my family sat me down and said, this is how we're going to do things. They just modeled it. So gossip and other forms of indirect communication are additional examples of distorted thinking. We don't directly communicate with people to resolve problems. We talk about them to other people. So here's a specific example of my family where I remember being really shocked when one of my brothers directly communicated with my mom about something that we had been skirting around for decades. I was in my early 30s, and my therapist encouraged me to talk to my older brother about my father's infidelity to get his perspective. This was something I always knew as long as I could remember, but had never discussed with anyone except for a therapist. So I said to my brother, did you always know that dad was cheating on mom like I didn't? He was like, oh, absolutely. And he told me a story about a time when he was in the car with my dad and the song by the Eagles, You Can't Hide Your Lying Eyes, which is about infidelity, came on the radio and he and my dad exchanged a look about which my brother said, it was very clear that I knew he was cheating, and that he knew that I knew. Now, by the way, that story right there is a perfect example of indirect communication happening. That is the story of my family. No words were exchanged, only a look was exchanged, but my brother summed up that look by saying, dad knows that I know that he's been cheating on mom. Now, we don't know if that's actually what happened. Maybe my father didn't know that my brother knew, but my brother assumed that he knew because that's how we did things in my family, more distorted thinking. After my brother and I had that conversation, we talked to my younger brother, who was eight years younger than me and 10 years younger than my brother. So it was almost like he grew up in a different family than we did, and he didn't know about any of this stuff. He was six the first time my parents got separated, and then he was eight when they got separated and eventually divorced. So when we talked to him about this, he went right to our mom and said, hey, was dad always cheating on you? And me and my older brother were like, wait a minute, what? You talked to mom and you asked her about this? In other words, you spoke out loud to somebody that was involved in the situation and you asked them a direct question? We were so aghast that he would actually talk to someone that was involved in the situation rather than talk around them and talk about them. And I remember thinking at the time, like, how did he even know that that was a thing? It would have never occurred to me or my older brother to go directly to my mother and ask her that. It was just not something that was done. Patterns of behavior and of relationships. 
and how you relate to other people stem from distorted thinking. We think this is how it works because that's all we know. When I was doing the 12 steps the first time with a group of other women, we all realized that the reason that we wanted people to read our minds is because we think, well, that's how it works. We were like, well, I've been reading other people's minds my whole life. Why aren't they reading mine? Now, never mind the fact that that mind reading we thought we were doing wasn't really working. The reason we were trying to read other people's minds was because of one of the three rules of dysfunctional families, which are don't talk, don't trust, and don't feel. And in my family, the don't talk rule was really prevalent. And specifically, it meant don't ask questions. You are just supposed to know shit, I guess, by osmosis. So we had to try to read people's minds because nobody told us what the fuck was going on. There were things that we all knew without speaking about it. Like we all knew that dad was cheating and we also knew never to talk about it. And we learned not to talk about it by observing others' behavior in our family. Another piece of distorted thinking from my family was that asking for help is wrong, bad, or weak. We were supposed to bend over backwards to help other people, but the idea of asking for help ourselves was an absolute no-no. You're supposed to know how to handle stuff you've never dealt with before by yourself without asking questions or for help. Asking for help was not demonstrated and it was definitely seen as a weakness. When I learned to start reaching out for help early in recovery, it was a monumental task for me. It was extremely difficult and an incredibly humbling process for me because I had the idea that asking for help was weak, which by the way, it's not. And embedded in that is the notion that weakness is somehow bad, which by the way, it's not. Weak is not bad, it's just not strong. And the human race could not survive if no one ever asked for help. So it's actually good to ask for help. Humans are pack animals who live in villages for a reason. We are wired for connection. And we need each other to survive. So, of course, we need each other and should ask for help. But I grew up with the idea that asking for help was somehow weak and bad and wrong. And when I started to learn that asking for help was really a good thing that I should do, I would occasionally have the impulse to ask for help. But then I would feel super shitty and guilty. And sometimes I felt like I was going to die. It felt threatening. I did a whole episode on reaching out for help and how I did it and what that looked like for me and how powerful an experience it was. It's episode number nine. I will link it in the show notes. This is another example of the distorted thinking that comes from growing up in a dysfunctional family. Here's another one. I didn't know that if I knock something over and it breaks or spills, that you do not have to lose your shit. What I learned was you say things like, Jesus fucking Christ, I can't believe I just did that, blah, 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 blah. I didn't know that that kind of thing is just part of life and nothing to get riled up about. But I saw people getting all riled up about stuff like this my whole life. 
I got frustrated at little things all the time. And I took my frustration out on those situations or on inanimate objects because I never took out my frustration on other people, at least not to their faces. I did it behind their back for sure, but not to their faces because I was so invested in what other people thought of me that there's no way that I was going to be like, what the fuck is the matter with you directly to a person? I would think that and I might say it to someone else, but I wouldn't say it to them. I was just talking with a client the other day and we were talking about this very notion. She said to me, facts didn't equal facts when we were kids. Facts meant something different. So for example, the fact is that you knock something over and it broke. We made that fact mean you should be frustrated and annoyed and you should lose your shit over it, as opposed to it's just a mundane fact of life. Gravity and physics work and some things fall and break. But we learned in our families that facts meant something specific. They weren't just facts. All right, now let's connect all of this distorted thinking to the part of step one where we're powerless over the fear and over the distorted thinking. What does that mean? Now, we learn in 12-step recovery that our problem is a lack of power and that when we have a lack of power, the solution to that is a power greater than us. Many of us call that a higher power. I happen to call my higher power God. Now, if I notice distorted thinking, instead of beating myself up and saying, why the fuck did I do that again? I go, oh, that's right. This is something I'm powerless over. I need to either hand it over to my higher power or ask my higher power to take it from me or ask my higher power for guidance on how to handle this situation. What I found is that over time, the distorted thinking has been reduced massively. It happens less and less frequently, same with the fear, the farther I get into recovery. Now, these are probably never going to go away entirely. What's different is I recognize this distorted thinking now as distorted thinking. It's not just what is, it's a distortion of what is. It's no longer a surprise to me that I'm going to have fucked up thoughts sometimes. It's going to happen. But now I know not to believe those distorted thoughts. Early in my recovery, I heard the saying, you're not responsible for your first thought, but you are responsible for your second thought and for what comes out of your mouth. That's a recognition that you're going to have fucked up thoughts, recognize them for what they are, turn them around and make sure that first thought is not the shit that comes out of your mouth. So an example that comes to mind is, If somebody does something that doesn't make sense to me, my first thought might be something like, what a fucking idiot. Now, this could be a super intelligent person, but my first thought still might be, what a fucking idiot, because that's what I was taught in my family, what you think and say about people who do things that don't make sense to you is, what a fucking idiot. But as a person in recovery and a woman who believes in the absolute dignity of every human being, I don't actually believe that someone is an idiot. It's just distorted thinking. And I'm not going to let that thought come out of my mouth. We are powerless over these fears we have and the distorted thinking we have. 
We're going to have them, but if we stay in recovery, they will be reduced dramatically. You're always going to have a fucked up thought here and there, and that's just the kind of thing that you're powerless over. But you can hand those fears and thoughts over to God, or you can ask God to remove them, or you can ask God for guidance on how to handle them. That's a step one issue. If you're ready to finally have an enjoyable, relaxing summer doing things you really want to do, instead of always following other people's agendas, I have some openings for private clients right now. If you are really tired of saying yes to things you really don't want to do and being overly accommodating to others, this is for you. It's time to start accommodating yourself. Maybe you're dissatisfied with your relationships and overwhelmed with all kinds of difficult feelings because of your interactions with others. If you'd like to get your life in order before the summer hits, go to barbchat.net and sign up for a free 30-minute call with me about my private coaching so we can get started right away. That way, you'll be done by summer. This is for people who are finally ready to make deep, lasting changes in their relationship patterns, including their relationships with themselves, their partners, family, friends, and colleagues. Go to barbchat.net. If you like this podcast, and I'm guessing you did or you wouldn't still be listening, then you're going to love the other things I have to offer. If you'd love pre-release podcast scripts and episodes before anyone else gets them, or if you'd love access to content from my private vault that I developed exclusively for my private clients, which is like having a work session with me without me actually being there, go to patreon.com slash higher power coaching. There are three tiers ranging from as low as $4 up to $24 a month. You'll also love my weekly newsletter, Friday Fragments, which has content very similar to the podcast. You can check it out at fridayfragments.news. That's fridayfragments.news. Please like and subscribe to my podcast on your favorite podcast outlet. I'd also love it if you'd leave a review, which you can do either in the show notes or on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find my podcast so they can get the benefits you've gotten from listening. If someone came to mind when you listened to this particular episode, please share it with them. And my favorite place to hang out on social media is Instagram. I'm at Higher Power Coaching. Please DM me there. I'd love to hear what you got from this episode. I run group and private coaching programs on building healthy boundaries. Whether you need help with boundaries in your personal, professional, or romantic life, I can help. Head on over to barbchat.net where you can hop onto my calendar for a free 30-minute Better Boundaries consultation. My ideal client is someone who is ripe for change. If that's you, I would love to work with you. My goal with all my work is to help you make lasting changes in your life like I've made deep lasting changes in my life. Remember, it's never too late to recover. No one is beyond hope and healing is possible. Thanks for listening.